Buffalo Report and Weekly Review. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, again, and this time and this week, we I'm coming to you from uh, Cairo, Egypt, where I have been the last couple of weeks teaching uh, so many courses. And uh, so before I leave to return to the U.S., I thought um, we'd go ahead and record to make sure we stay online and uh, keep you up to date on the articles that are the top 10 on the Aquila Report for this last week. So it's Dominic Aquila, along with Paul Harrell, uh, joining you uh, for this um, this podcast of the Aquila Report Weekly Review. And so we're so glad that you're with us. And so, Paul, even though I think we're seven hours apart from each other, uh, we're hoping that we'll get clear signals and sound if we yes. uh, get any glitches or bumps along the way uh, i believe the audience will bear with us along along that well, process you know so so far the infrastructure of egypt is, is sounding okay on my end i mean okay, but, okay. but we'll, well see super. we'll see if it holds up yeah okay well if um you have the top 10 list there if you yes, read the uh, top 10 going from 10 to 6 and i'll pick up from uh five to one and then we'll get started all right, number 10 from last week, and we have two of these articles, uh, but this is number 10 from last week, Tom Hervey, a consideration of Craig Carter's recommended return to scholasticism, part two, final analysis and rejoiner. Uh, so that's number 10. Number nine, we have Sinclair Ferguson, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Number eight, a superlative guide to all 15 elder qualifications. That's by David Mathis. And let's see, 10, 9, 8, 7. Number 7 last week is uh, the counterpart to number 10, Tom Hervey. Again, a consideration of Craig Carter's recommended return to scholasticism, part 1. And then finally, uh, number 6, uh, Alan Sh- uh, Schlemann, Gay Idioms Don't Time Travel. Okay, well then, beginning with number 5, a Christian funeral service or a celebration of life of service by Tony Felice. Uh, number four is uh, a review of the book, Church Refugees, Leaving the Church But Not Their Faith Behind. Uh, and that is by uh, Al Tag- uh, Taglieri, uh, uh, that he gives us that uh, review. Um, and then we have number three, what the federal vision still does uh, to, uh, to the definition of faith. And that is by Chris Gordon. And then number two is uh, when the shorter catechism was recited from memory at Westminster Abbey. A really. And that's by Wayne Herring. And then number one, uh, the uh, title from is Disney Air's animated series about Satan impregnating a reluctant mother who gave birth the Antichrist. And uh, that is a staff writer. Uh, for um, the uh, Cauldron Pool. So we begin with that one. That's a very long title, Disney Air's animated series about Satan impregnating a reluctant mother who birthed the Antichrist. After uh, being impregnated by the devil, a reluctant mother and her Antichrist daughter attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware. And that's sort of the subhead title. Uh, but now it uh, begins with Disney Plus has dropped its latest animated series, which follows the life of a young teenage girl who learns she is a human, uh, human demon hybrid spawn of Satan. The series 
title Little Demon is uh, set 13 years after the devil impregnated a single reluctant mother, uh, resulting in the birth of their antichrist daughter, Chrissy. Uh, Disney Plus Informer uh, describes the show as an animated comedy featuring the voices of Danny DeVito and Aubrey uh, Plaza. It has been uh, 13 years since being impregnated by Satan and a reluctant mother, Laura and her antichrist daughter, Chrissy, attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware. However, the two are constantly thwarted by monstrous forces, including Satan, who yearns for custody of his daughter's soul. So the thing, of course, that stands out here, uh, two things at least, uh, Paul, is the fact that uh, we're dealing with uh, giving Satan a lot of airtime. And second, that uh, Disney, which is supposed to be so family friendly uh, that, and child, children friendly, uh, that it would even go into this whole area of demonology uh, and uh, make it sort of appealing through all of its uh, beautiful art and, and animation and, and the like. And so that's something that uh, really should boggle the mind. Uh, of course, uh, Disney has been getting itself uh, in trouble with its um, a large part of its audience for some of the woke uh, decisions that it has made and taken uh, in the last couple of years. And so this now doesn't help their uh, re uh, corporate reputation or uh, the brand value that they have added uh, to have developed over the years. Uh, not sure why this is, but um, uh, it is uh, it, it is happening. Now, we do want to emphasize here that Disney Plus has dropped this latest animation. However, it hasn't dropped it everywhere. Uh, it says at the very end of the article that the uh, Little Demon began streaming on Disney Plus in Australia and New Zealand on Wednesday, September 1. So whether or not it uh, has been dropped throughout the whole system, uh, we're not sure. But this is... Um, Something that just in the general culture and the feel good, if, if you go to Disney World, Disneyland, uh, they have the marquee uh, thing. You're now entering the happiest place on earth. Uh, if this continues, it uh, will lose the reality of being able to make that statement. Yeah, you know, it hasn't been the happiest place on earth, I don't think, for a, for a very long time, you know, because of stuff like this. And We've also seen, uh, you know, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, come out and, and uh, you know, talk about the sexualization of kids and and Disney's role in that. Um, I mean, this this is the number one article last week because it's just so shocking. Um, and what's real, what I really thought of is just like, you know, Christians are certainly not uh, running our society and neither are atheists. I, I, at this point, I mean, I think you just have to call a spade a spade and believe your own eyes and, and and ears about what they are promoting and, and what they think is good uh i mean they they what they think is good or what they want to make a joke a joke of it's it's uh it's just extremely disturbing um and in, and in all of this christ is uh, still on his throne and uh, uh and he reigns and he rules and uh we we know that that he's going to come again and uh and uh make this right but um it it doesn't I mean, you know, we have to think about um, I, and I we have to think about what our kids are being, uh, you know, subjected to. And uh, this is our government, uh, our, our culture, our uh, in our land of America. This is what's considered 
children's entertainment. Now, and I know this particular series is, they'll say it's probably for adults. And I think it airs on the FX network, which is typically, uh, you know, more of a, a adult type, you know, uh, the adult programming and that sort of thing. But Disney itself is a, supposedly children's entertainment. And it's, you know, this, this is just a absolutely further down the slippery slope, Dominic. I mean, we talk about the slippery slope in terms of, uh, you know, ecclesiastical movements, but, uh, this is certainly, uh, a cultural, a cultural one as well. And, and here we are, here we see. Right. Well, you know, but Paul, it, it, it goes longer that, you know, they, Disney developed a brand of something that was considered uh, fun, wholesome, you know, cute. Uh, and that's the reason people stream to places like Disneyland, Disney World. Uh, but this is taking them in a totally different direction. And you almost wonder what would possess them and, and being uh, pers- uh, and using that without a pun intended uh, to uh, do something that is so contrary to the, the audience that they're seeking to reach and have been reaching all this time. So that is, you're, as you're right, it's uh, number one, I think, because of that interest that has been over the years, and I think they have uh, definitely wounded themselves. Okay, number two will take us a little bit different way. This is a memory written by uh, Pastor Wayne Herring, who's a retired PCA minister, who talks about a time when uh, he and his first wife, Joyce, used to take uh, annual trips of uh, people from the church and then also senior highs who were graduating from the school that uh, they worked in uh, to London and they would it would be a historical uh, journey and they would go to visit historical sites and so forth and one of the sites you usually visit of course would be Westminster Assembly and one of the, the uh, Abbey and one of the things that distinguishes that is that for Presbyterians Westminster uh, cathedral and it's specifically the Jerusalem chamber uh, is, is very important in our history because it's the place where the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and Directory for Worship were all put together, uh, debated over a period of time from uh, 1643 to about 1648. Uh, the There was supposed to be a, a redraft uh, of the 49, 39 articles of the Christian religion, but the the British Parliament didn't accept it, but the Scots uh, Parliament did, and as a result, uh, uh, the uh, Scotland being the home of the the, the uh, Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian, uh, everywhere Presbyterian went, they now took with them all the Westminster uh, documents. So uh, he tells a really delightful story, Wayne Heron does, that they uh, went through uh, the uh, Westminster Abbey, and just on a lark, uh, Wayne asked one of the uh, attendees, if, uh, I mean the uh, ushers, if they could look into the Jerusalem chamber, because it's usually not open to the public and uh, for um, tourists. And so when he explained, they said no, and so or the, one, the woman, he rather said no, and so when he explained that Jerusalem chamber was such a historical room because of the Westminster Assembly, she said, well, I'll open it and let you all take a peek and maybe uh, spend you know, a few minutes in there. And so while they were in there, uh, this uh, group, uh, two of the women had, before they came, memorized the shorter uh, catechism and the children's catechism. And so they thought, well, let's ask you a few questions. 
and the, the lady who uh, usher was uh, stayed with them as they were in the room um, and she heard the few questions that were asked and she was just bowled over that these women were able to recite so wonderful and that these words were actually written in that room so she said well uh, maybe you could go a little bit more and so they went through all 107 questions of the shorter catechism as the the women were being asked back and forth and um, the the usherette was so impressed that she went and got a bottle of sherry and uh, glasses and they toasted the moment that the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the room that it was written and now was being celebrated by women who had uh, memorized answered all the questions correctly and well and it was a great celebrative event so it's just a wonderful story you've got to read it in uh, Wayne's words and it makes a, makes a lot of good sense yeah and at the very end so remember if you know and understand the Shorter Catechism you know theology period Oh, that and that was the takeaway. I thank you for bringing that up. And that was a phrase from uh, Wayne's uh, father-in-law who uh, told him, if you know the Shorter Catechism, you know theology, period. And uh, that's the focus that he wanted to also leave us with. So uh, those of you who have attempted to read it or you haven't even gone that way, you may want to take up the questions, 107 questions, you will know your theology. So uh, thank you, Wayne, for uh, that article and it showed a lot of interest in human interest and it was number two well number three uh we come to uh, chris gordon who is a pastor out in escondido california uh, what the federal vision still does to the definition of faith uh, he gives a little background that the years of about 2001 to 2004 a group of writers within the reform community banded together to form uh, forming a theological system of movement that became known as the Federal Vision or the Auburn Avenue Theology. So under the rubric of covenant theology, this movement was uh, posited as a, a false, posited a false dichotomy between biblical and systematic theology, redefining many of the confessional categories and terms. And so that created quite an uh, uproar within the uh, broad reform community. So any church that had the reformed label or background to it uh, had to deal with uh, and consider the nature uh, and the, uh, what was being taught through the uh, group, this new movement called the Federal Vision. In fact, in uh, 2006, the General Assembly of the PCA appointed, uh, voted to approve appointing a committee to study the Federal Vision and all of its parts and the uh, outgrowths from it. Uh, they reported back an excellent report at the 2007 General Assembly that was held in Memphis, and it was received heartily by the PCA. So you can still uh, get that um, document uh, <clears throat> and, and read it uh, because it really explains the background to that whole uh, document. So um, it, what Chris, Gordon is saying in this article is that the even though the the, the study committee like what the PCA did um, really had helped to make things clearer so that it said that the federal vision was out of sync with the historic reformed theology and views in the covenant and so forth uh, that it's still here and there and she, he says they still those who are holding it still don't get the definitions correct and they are uh, still to be suspect 
So he shows in different areas, especially with reference to the nature of faith and of saving grace that uh, is very important. And so this is something to watch on the horizon that it's not something that will rate or be raised up again. Uh, the uh, one of the things that Chris says here is there are two important points to observe. First, the federal vision statement correctly de denies that the faith in God's act of just uh, God's act of justifying the sinner can be understood as anything other than that which was given by God. But when prompted as to what kind of faith justifies and what is the faith kind of faith that God gives, the statement is unequivocal. Justifying faith is a living, active, and personally loyal faith. Now, it sounds like it's okay, uh, but for Federal Vision, uh, Gordon says that faith justifies not because only it only apprehends Christ or apprehends Christ, but also because it obeys or because it contains spirit-wrought sanctity and virtues of love and hope. Faith is not merely apprehending and resting in Christ, but it also must be active, living, and loyal. And what he says here, that's where the idea that one of the areas that there was a problem with is that the concept of the active obedience of Christ was moved from him, and it was just Christ's passive obedience is what redeems, and we have our confidence in him, our faith in him, and we have forgiveness of sins. But his active obedience is not there, and it's moved over to the other side of the believer having to actively demonstrate by a living faith that um, he or she is walking in the truth. And, uh, and that just breaks the system. Uh, it violates uh, that which the Reformed uh, people, uh, confessions and creeds have held to from the beginning of the Reformation, that uh, faith is... Uh, trusting in the active and passive being of Christ alone for salvation and that the work that it gives us is uh, is the uh, that we perform are evidences of the fruit of what Christ has done but it's not we do not become active to uh, certify uh, our final justification so anyway it's a good article I'm glad that Chris has done, read it because there ever so often these things will pop up and we need to keep the corrections um, before us so that we don't fall back into uh, what created a great deal of tension in the life of the church in the 2000s. Well, you know, I, that was that was uh, before my time. Um, and uh, it's that's what's interesting to me. You know, this made the number three, uh, the number three on the list. And so um, it's it certainly I mean, I'm familiar with the controversy, you know, vaguely familiar, but obviously I didn't really live through that like like you did Dominic and so many others so um, I just take note of that it's you know number three and it's still something that uh, people are interested in yes it, it's still out there and there's it, it, there are always lingering effects just because you come up with a good critical assessment doesn't mean everyone comes alongside and says okay the the issue's done it's uh, there's more to it so excellent article and uh, it keeps the issue before us because and the reason he's writing is because it is out there in the life of the church and we want to make sure it doesn't pop up its head again so i'm glad it's number three in that regard uh the number four ag al tagliari tagliari is a, a ruling elder at the um providence Presbyterian church pca in york alabama and he's written before and this is a review 
of a book called uh, Church Refugees by Josh Packard and Ashley Hope. Um, there is a celebratory, celebratory glee in reporting upon strong, faithful, and committed Christians leaving the, what is perceived to be the oppression of the church. And the author reports at least four reasons justifying uh, these heroic former members walking away in a fit of pique. Uh, and then he gives some of those uh, reasons. So this book based, uh, is a book and the article uh, term these people as the done, D-O-N-E. So now they join the other group, the nuns, N-O-N-E. So you have the nuns, that is people when asked what their religion is or church preference, they check, check none. And that uh, seems to be a growing number uh, just in terms of population and how many people check that box. And now we have the duns, that is people who are done with church and they are dissatisfied. Uh, and he says that name done is instructive. Uh, I'm done uh, connotes anger to such a degree that one is committed to cutting off any further contact or communication uh, with the church or engagement with it. So uh, he goes and gives uh, this book and reviews this book in, uh, with regard to this phenomena that appears to be taking place, at least according to the, what this book has to say. Uh, so we, you know, probably uh, a, an issue that's just around the corner that'll be probably visiting a church in your neighborhood soon. Uh, so good to sort of be on the cutting edge and take, uh, be aware of what may be coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the the, uh, the beginning part here, when you first read it, uh, you don't know the terms. You know, uh, the I guess that what we call this the sub headline here. So the so that uh, so the Duns are leaving behind the church, but they but they do not necessarily leave their faith. Uh, anyway, so he de he defines those terms uh, in, in the article, and uh, you know, it certainly uh, is an interesting take. So. Right, it, it surely is. So the um, well, that with that in mind, then we come to the uh, next article uh, by Tony Felici, is pastor of the Redeemer uh, PCA in uh, Overland Park, Kansas, and um, he wrote this article after a particular number of uh, funerals that he's done recently, and it just came to him that. Uh, that he's noted that people are using the phrase a celebration of life to refer to funeral services even for believers and that prompted him to think about it and so he wrote this article it's very brief but it's very helpful uh should we determine a christian funeral service or a celebration of life service uh he says and concludes i suggest that there should be a funeral service of witness to the resurrection of christ to help us grieve properly and hope substantially knowing that Christ has indeed defeated death. While our hearts are tender and our minds are anxious with the thought of being without want the one we love, the message of a certain resurrection to come as promised and proven by Christ is exactly what is needed. So he very pastorally uh, communicates, you know, that uh, perhaps we need to think about the nature of a Christian funeral uh, that does include you know, honoring the person, the believer who has uh, gone home to glory, uh, but but we don't just put it into a celebration where the part of sorrow and lament 
are removed, and that's how he perceives what the celebration of life is about. So it's just a very helpful article, and I think it touched um, many that so that it was number five on the this last week's uh, list of articles that are, were written. So a, a very pastorally written, carefully written, uh, lovingly written uh, article by Pastor Felice. Yeah, and he says, uh, whatever we might call a service for a Christian loved one who died, number one, Christ should be the focus. Number two, grieving is proper, necessary, and okay. And three, any celebration should be about Christ's victory over the grave, and people should leave thinking of Christ more than the deceased. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's, a, like I said, very helpful pastoral and shepherdly article. Okay, the next uh, article is Gay Idioms Don't Time Travel uh, by Alan Schlemann. Um, Pro-gay theology advocates have tried to undermine the historic Christian teaching on sexuality for decades. The problem with their approach has often been their inability to follow common sense interpretive rules that help determine the meaning of any text, uh, not just the Bible. And when they violate these rules, they can make scripture say anything. And so in this article, uh, Schlemann uh, is arguing that the way in which uh, those within the, the church that are promoting LGBTQ uh, issues um, and trying to make it uh, a real part and uh, just a fluid part of the uh, church's life um, is because of the language they use, the words, and their uh, lack of careful uh, interpretive uh, use of interpretation for scripture, uh, then it's not a healthy um, thing that they do. And ultimately, the, because of their uh, faulty idiomatic phrasing and, and what they depend on on a faulty uh, process and uh, verbiage, uh, it, eventually it's just going to collapse uh, on itself because the words won't be able to carry the meaning for long. So uh, that's why he focuses on, uh, this is why it's important to remember the Bible was not written in English in our culture or in a remotely similar time period. Biblical languages have their own figures of speech. And most relevant to my point, idioms don't time travel. Words used to create idioms back in the first century don't mean the same thing today and vice versa. Sometimes, though, a reader today will see a group of words in scripture and interpret them through the lens of modern English when the biblical author neither used English words nor meant to communicate the idiom they have in mind. So, uh, so it's a helpful article just in terms of being reminded about how to go about doing Bible study and uh, making sure that we're letting the scripture speak uh, for itself. And so I appreciate the uh, way in which um, Schlemann has handled this piece and really challenges the church to be careful about buying into uh, idioms that are, are not, that claim to be derived from scripture and are not. Listen to this. <clears throat> this is part of the article here. Pro popular pro-gay theology advocate Brandon Robinson uh, made this mistake with a passage from the Bible. I'll admit, though, it's understandable given his position. If you identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual and want to follow Jesus, you have two options. The first is to obey Jesus, and that means you must pick up your cross daily and follow him, and command a command that requires you no longer satisfy same-sex sexual desires. 
There are many men and women in the church, like my friends Christopher Yawn and Becky Cook, who have done just that. They mortify their same-sex sexual desires and abide by Scripture's sexual ethics. The second, though, is to reinterpret Jesus and twist the meaning of his word. That's what pro-gay theology advocates do. They recognize the church has a 2,000-year historical precedent of interpreting Scripture to teach that marriage is about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. They also recognize the church has interpreted the Bible to prohibit homosexual sex. That means same-sex sexual activity is a sin. Since this pro-gay theology advocate doesn't accept the first option, he's forced to interpret biblical teaching on sexuality and put words in Jesus' mouth. Robertson cites John 11.43, where Jesus brings Lazarus back to life and calls on him to, quote, come out, end quote. He argues that Jesus is encouraging Lazarus to step into the light, be who you are, and come alive. Now, Dominic, I'm telling you what, this makes me pretty upset. I, I'm just going to say, I, I had not heard this argument before. I I mean, I knew that people who, who you know, want to, uh, uh, you know, ha- have their sexual sin have, have been twisting scripture, but I had no idea that they were going this far as to say, and, and lying to their parishioners. I mean, outright lying, saying that when Jesus told Lazarus to come out, that he was meaning come out of the closet. That is just un, I don't even know. I don't, I mean, it's almost not even worth the article correcting it. It's so absurd. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, something that we consider, but you know, that's unfortunately what happens when we, uh, you know, have an English word or whatever the, colloquial word of the culture is uh, uh, or verbiage and uh, we we treat it as, uh, in its modern day context without understanding its context in scripture which then really does open up all sorts of problems and that's where heresies and faulty teaching uh, develop when we when we do that so the uh, very helpful um, warning from uh, Shlom. the seventh article is uh, tied in with number 10 as well. This is part one. Number 10 is going to be part two uh, by uh, Tom Hervey. A consideration of Craig Carter's recommended return to scholasticism, part one. Now, this is a little bit more technical kind of article that um, we run ever so often uh, because it, 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 uh, gets, it gets down to the sort of the, uh, the weeds of things uh, that uh, not we not part of our normal everyday parlance, but yet it is important because what Tom Harvey brings up here uh, are things that can later on become part of the life of the church. So he, he says the suggestion that we should learn from representatives of a communion that still binds men's consciences and misleads them uh, with false doctrine is highly objectionable. And this he's referring to what comes out of the um, Protestant out of the um, scholastic period um, that uh, really was the ground uh, of, and where a lot of the thinking that is now part of the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodoxy um, was uh, has come. So such men, he says, are members of a communion that has spent most of the last 500 years saying that believing Protestant doctrine is damning sin has regarded as within its power and duty to curse Protestants for such error by its anathemas. 
and that has readily abetted such spiritual coercion with physical persecution to the cruelest types uh, when and where and has been uh, uh, within its power to do so. So that's Tom Hervey's just sort of summary expression here. But it takes us back uh, to uh, an articles that were in the magazine Credo, and uh, in it, the uh, one of the editors of it has uh, explained the uh, thoughts from flowing from uh, Car Karl Barth, but he's not speaking so much about Barth as he is talking about just take, uh, picking up the um, the the enlightenment the uh, mona uh, I'll get it right here in a minute <laughs> the um, uh, assessment from the Middle Ages and the Scholastics uh, which period ran usually from about the year 10,100 something like that to about into the 1300s in which there was a lot of writing and the Scholastics really did produce a lot of things sort of synthesized things gathered documents from the uh, centuries before. And uh, out of that came uh, what was known, is known as Middle Ages scholasticism. So uh, he says, I must confess the analysis seems somewhat oddly formed. However, the title of the section is Barth's, referring to Karl Barth, uh, rejection of the scholastic doctrine of election. Yet in the second sentence, we read that Barth was particularly critical of the reformed doctrine of election, and uh, which suggests that reformed and scholastic are synonymous when in fact they are not. Also, this section is not merely about Barth's rejection of election, be it reformed or scholastic, but about his fundamental metaphysical framework and its sources and how it leads him to more apparently Christocentric, but in fact still anthropomorphic theology, referring to uh, man-centered uh, theology, and in fact a discussion of his methods. So it's, like I said, it's technical, but I think uh, Tom Harvey really helps to help us understand some of what took place back in the scholastic periods so with some good summaries, and especially uh, the place of Thomas Aquinas, who sort of was the dominant um, theologian of the scholastic movement, and many would arguably say as the dominant theologian uh, for much of what Roman Catholicism holds uh, today. Uh, and how it, it's expressed and, and how it shows up in the, their catechisms. So um, if you can bear with it, go through it. Uh, you could learn something. It'll stretch your mind and trust that it uh, might be helpful to you. So, so is, is, is that is that all of your analysis for both articles or do we do we want to yeah. hear what you have to say about part two? Well, part two, it just uh, continues uh, this article, but it deals more with uh, with uh, with uh, Aquinas and uh, challenges what they say uh, about uh, John, um, you know, John Owen, I mean, about uh, what the Reformed uh, view on things are. So one Reformed scholasticism, it says, is not a synonym for classical, classic Reformed theology. This is an article two. Uh, there is much that is reformed that is not scholastic. Indeed, criticism of scholasticism was strong um, among some theologians of the period itself. Hence, John Owen, who was a Puritan writer in the same period of time as the Westminster Confession of Faith that was being written, some learned, he says, some learned the divinity out of the late and modern schools, and sometimes scholastic means the schoolmen, both in the Reformed and the Papal Church. 
and both <clears throat> he says uh, uh, and both which a science is proposed under the name consisting of a far ago uh, far ago uh, credible presuppositions asserted in terms suited unto the philosophy that is variously predominant in them. Uh, what a kind of theology this hath produced in the papacy, Agriola, Erasmus, uh, Vives, uh, Jansenius, and innumerable other learned men, quoting a number of people who held to these uh, scholastic things, um, uh, of your own, have sufficiently declared, and it hath any uh, it hath any better success in the Reformed churches. Many things which I shall not now an instance give me cause doubt. So he basically is challenging the assumption that the Reformed scholastic, as a Reformed theology and scholasticism really are touch, just uh, two sides of one coin. And I don't believe that the, that's the uh, case. So uh, Harvey just basically takes two articles to express the what he perceives to be a move back to study this classics in a way that uh, would be approved without realizing how much they influence the Middle Ages and into the church that against which then the Reformation was formed. It moved away from though their logic, their training, their teaching, and uh, so that the Reformed theology was its, the answer over against that kind of teaching that scholasticism brought it brought about. So I know that sounds confusing, but this is one well, that you need to go for it. Go. No, 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 no doubt. Uh, my only observation, uh, just in the 30,000 foot view of this top 10 list, is that we have the uh, we have the Federal Vision article where people are, you know, restating their objections, uh, which is something, you know, fairly uh, relatively, it's a recent uh, controversy. And uh, I'm just thankful for the brothers that you know, are, are are on top of these are on these things because we're we you know it's not just from you know 10 years ago we'll, we'll go we'll go all the way back to the period of scholasticism and and uh, make sure that we we restate our objections to that as well. So I'm just uh, just kind of standing in awe of of all of that and very thankful. I agree. So. Well, uh, and 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 encourage others to be in awe with you. And even if it sounds uh, sort of a little highfalutin, maybe out of the ordinary, uh, you take a dive, uh, at least work through it. I think you'll find it very helpful. And I think your observation is very helpful uh, that um, that what go what has been will happen again uh, because we tend to forget our history and the issues that created problems back when. Uh, can then come up uh, in another generation and uh, it, it will surface again. So the more we're aware of what has been that has wounded the church, uh, we need to um, be ready to see it and catch it early so it doesn't uh, spread once again. All right, well, number uh, eight is uh, the title, A Superlative Guide to all 15 elder qualifications. Now, the 15 are those the summaries that Paul uh, gives in his um, in first, uh, in first Corinthians, uh, first Timothy rather, uh, three and Titus one. And so, uh, this uh, uh, article by David Mathis, in uh, which is actually out of a book that he is, has written from that's published by Crossway. Um, is just working through and defining what these 
superlative qualifications are that uh, Paul lists and what they mean and uh, how they function in the church. Um, so he says for Christians, uh, see, um, yeah, yeah, for Christians, we have our conflicts and controversies to grieve and speak into, but the risen Christ has not left us confused about what to expect, pray for, and hold our leaders to account for. Scripture has a lot to say about our current crisis. So to my count, 1 uh, Timothy 3 provides 15 requirements for pastor elders, the uh, lead or teaching office in the church. Another list, again, I count 15, comes from pages, from, uh, pages later in Titus 1, uh, with most of them mapping uh, on precisely to the first list. Uh, added to that, we have, among others, 1 Peter 5, uh, there's 2 Timothy 2, uh, 22 to 26, Hebrews 13, and the words of Christ in Mark 10, 42 to 45. So taking all of those together, he counts 15 uh, total, uh, wherever they're duplicates, so they're not repeated, and he uh, addresses them so that we can understand what the, the definitions are. So he says, uh, again, here, uh, David Mathis, for more than a decade now, I have given unusual time and attention to lingering over the pastor to elder qualifications. Not only am I a pastor seeking a, to regularly rehearse what Christ requires of me and grow with his help in these virtues, but since 2012, I've been assigned the eldership class at Bethlehem Seminary. This class is typically a cohort of 15, 16 seminarians trained to be vocational pastor teachers. So over time, we found the lists of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to be worthy of far more than a brief review of a single session at a single session or focus. In fact, in seeking to present to the class and address what scripture teaches and what I found to be significant in pastoral ministry, I found again and again that essentially all the relevant practical issues in preparing for eldership pair with one or more of the traits that Paul lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So a just really helpful. So if you, if any, the readers are uh, interested in, uh, you know, uh, 1 Timothy 3 begins, if anyone desires to be an overseer, it is a good thing he desires. Well, what does that mean? So now you have some help along with some other works that exist uh, on this as well. Uh, or if uh, there's election coming up in your church or nominations, uh, you have the list again to help you uh, evaluate whether or not those who are standing for election are qualified to be elders or to, if the pastor is being called, if what his qualifications are. So a uh, very uh, practical guide um, to just open up the scripture at this point. It's also good considering you know, the controversies of side B, side A, uh, this headline uh, or this subheadline here, honorable men before a watching world. You know, I think that addresses, uh, this will be helpful, you know, to address anybody out there who's, you know, on the fence uh, with, let's say, Overture 15, you know, that's going before Presbyteries now to be voted on. Uh, this, this would also be uh, a helpful guide. Yes, it is. And just to, and what Paul is just referencing with Overture 15, if you recall, for those of you who listen regularly to the Equal Report and Whitby Review, 
that uh, it's referring to the um, amendment to the Book of Church Order, Chapter 7, uh, in which a one statement, one long sentence, one paragraph is being voted on by the Presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America uh, to add about what uh, if a man does, uh, describes himself describes himself as homosexual, even if he is living in celibacy, that uh, he is not qualified to serve as an elder. So it picks up on that theme. And so that's his reference to that. And I think that's an apropos, uh, you know, con uh, context or statement. All right, the, then the last one we considered, which is number nine, because remember number seven and number 10 are the parts one and two of the um, Tom Harvey's article on considering scholasticism and how some of it may be coming up again today. This is a article by Sinclair Ferguson. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Um, he says the exhortation to abide has been frequently misunderstood as though it were a special mystical and indefinable experience. But Jesus makes clear that it actually involves a number of concrete realities. Uh, first, he says that union with our Lord depends on his grace. Of course, we are actively and personally united to Christ by faith, but faith itself is rooted in the activity of God. It is the Father who, as the divine gardener, has grafted us into Christ. It is Christ by his word who has cleansed us uh, to fit us for union with himself. All is sovereign, all is of grace. Second, union with Christ means being obedient to him. Abiding involves our response to the teaching of Jesus. Uh, if you are able, abide in me and my words abide in you. Uh, these are the words that uh, he's being referred to. Then Paul echoes this idea in Colossians 3.16, where he writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, a statement closely related to his parallel exhortation in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, basically, uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, says here, in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. Uh, excellent article that challenges us with regard to recognizing another aspect of our uh, relationship with Christ that really makes it, as he says, concrete and real uh, for us. And finally, uh, finally, uh, finally, it says we are called as part of this abiding process to submit to the pruning knife of God uh, in the providences by which he cuts away all disloyalty and sometimes all that is unimportant in order that we might remain in Christ all the more wholeheartedly. Amen. So, really good. Well, that's a good. And so that article, I think you'll find very helpful. And as I like to say, uh, one that uh, for small groups, uh, for private conversation with friends, what maybe forwarding it to others uh, would be very helpful. Well, we've uh, come to the end of our the Aquila Report in Weekly Review for October 10, 2022. That uh, means that these the list that you have just heard us go over will come out in the uh, Quilter Report newsletter on Tuesday, October 11, and it will show up in your inbox if you are already signed up to receive the newsletter. And you can uh, they're hyperlinked and ready for you to click on and just 
take your time and uh, go through them. You have all the week uh, to read through them. As I like to say, if you find something helpful, uh, share it with others, uh, forward it to them and so that they can enjoy it with you or it could be some point of discussion for you. Uh, so we uh, trust that uh, this uh, podcast helps uh, to explain things. So whether you're listening before the articles are read, read or afterwards, that it's helpful to you. And so uh, next week, I'll be back in my regular place, uh, not so far uh, across the other side of the world from my normal location. And uh, we appreciate God's uh, providence. I do. Safe travels, Dominic. Yeah, safe travels and tremendous uh, week, a couple weeks of teaching. And uh, But uh, look forward to being in my sleeping in my own bed. So until next time, uh, we wish the